If you could genetically select for replacement heifers with confidence knowing you'd highly improve the number of cattle in your herd that will perform in your environment, how would that affect your profitability? Is an animal that's efficient in dry lot also efficient on pasture? And is that even a safe assumption to me? Edward Bork with the University of Alberta is my guest as we talk about a research project underway to help ranchers customize their cattle to the type of country they run in, meaning land and forage resources. Are there genetic traits that can be identified to give that assurance to ranchers in their breeding programs? We'll find out what this project is all about on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Well, hi again, everyone, and we welcome you back here again to another episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills, and if this is your first time for joining us, well, first of all, I want to thank you for tuning it our direction or downloading it on your podcast site, if that's uh, multiple ways you can get that, and we're glad to have you here along. We hope that you enjoy our program here today. If you were listening in at the very beginning, uh, we were talking about this is going to be about a research project that's going on with the University of Alberta. And uh, my guest today is going to be Edward Bork, who's a professor up there with the Rangeland Ecology and Management with the University of Alberta. It's a, a topic that caught my attention mainly as a cow-calf producer myself here in northeastern Wyoming. There's always that mechanism of how do we select for, for cows and, and how do we find these cattle out there that fit our environment. We have so many types of environments here in North America that I know there's a lot of different elements that are unique to specific areas. But nevertheless, are there maybe some genetic markers, some things like that, that we can utilize that would help us to instead of have instead of maybe a shotgun approach maybe we can start to narrow this down and with the improved technology that's out there genetics uh, genomics i should say and various other technologies that's out there this is becoming potentially a more and more realistic thing. And so today, Edward Bork with the University of Alberta is going to be joining me to talk about this research project that is just getting underway. Of course, here in just a few moments, the Captain Tim O'Byrne will be by for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. And of course, as we always do at the very end of our program, meteorologist Don Day will be checking in as we take a look at our long-term weather. Right now, a thank you to the sponsors of the Working Ranch Radio Show, the American Simmental Association. Balance the scales with the a breed that offers reliable calving ease, early growth, and cow longevity, all done with a Simmental-influenced cow that doesn't have a big feed bill. Find out more what that's about at Simmental.org. Bobcat, one tough tractor. Visit Bobcat.com, and you can use their build and quote tool, and you can design your ideal machine. And finally, the American Akaushi Association. Experience the difference. Find out more at Akaushi.com. Com. Well, right now, let's check in with the captain, Tim O'Byrne, publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. Hey, Justin. Hey, everybody out there. Now, I've got a poem for you here. It's from a book I bought at the Nevada State Museum, Logan, The Honorable Life and Scandalous Death of a Western Lawman by Jackie Bohr. And it's about Tom Logan, he was the sheriff of Tonopah, Nevada here. There's a good uh, poem in here by William Lawrence Larry Chittenden, 1862 to 1934, the ranchman's song. I thought you folks would like to hear it, so here we go. Afar from the tumult and turmoil of fashion, away, far away from the throng that intrudes, I am free from all envy and malice and passion, for my spirit expands in the wild solitudes. I love the broad prairie, the nother's sad sighting, the whispering stars, the owl's lone hoo, the mockingbird's song when the twilight is dying, the coyote's weird call as it echoes Caillou. Wild nature to me is a thing that I cherish. I hate the dull discords that cities have shown, for there out of tune my free spirits shall perish. Let me dwell near to nature with my ideals alone. Better live rich at heart on a crust in a garret than languish in mansions impoverished with strife. There is joy in a dugout if fancy but share it. 
with hope and fond memory to brighten thy life. There's a zest amid hardship, which some natures treasure, a charm on the prairies that care cannot cloy. So avant ye dull follies of fashionable pleasure, give me the wild pleasures that ranchmen enjoy. Back to you, Justin. Well, Captain, that's a poem that I think for some folks they want to go back and listen to. There's some words in there that we don't use so much in today's modern English, but it does really hit to the point, the fact that, boy, it would be awful hard to go back and live in a city after experiencing what we have here in our rural lifestyles, and that is truly one of the things that makes it so great here in the ranching business. Well, don't go far, folks. When we come back, we're going to get into our featured interview as Edward Bork with the University of Alberta will step in and join us as we talk about this research project that they're working on to pinpoint genetic traits that could increase grazing efficiency while protecting your pastures. We'll talk about it when we come back on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Starting off in the right direction is essential to gaining an advantage later when you go to market your calves. And I have proof that the right direction is with Sim Angus Sired Calves. A 2020 study by K-State showed that Sim Angus Sired Steer Calves earn more at sale time than all other breed identified sire groups with at least 50 lots represented on Superior Livestock's 2020 summer sales. The proof's right there. For low-risk, high-potential calves with earning potential, be confident that Sim Genetics will give you more per head, period. Stand strong, Simmental. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills as we head now to our feature topic today. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of research being done out in the beef industry in ways that we can uh, make cattle more efficient. If it's efficient, we're trying to help and improve our profitability here on the ranch. And I came across an interesting uh, article that was about some research taking place at the University of Alberta. And so joining me today is Edward Bork, who's a full professor and Mathias chair in rangeland and ecology management for the University of Alberta. And first of all, before we get going too far, Edward, I do want to thank you for joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Well, thank you so much, Justin, for the invite. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and join you and talk a little bit about what we're doing. And as I said just a little bit ago, there is there is a lot of research being done out there by universities to try to just, there's a lot of elements to creating an efficient cow and, and how we can do that. And it really gets back to we us knowing that uh, feed costs are some of our largest costs that we have in a beef cattle operation or a cattle operation just in general. And one of the things that struck me about your your research project and and we'll have you I guess uh, as I said before we'll have you maybe define what you know what was what were you guys looking at when you looked at this and folks just as you're listening I'm going to tell you really what caught my attention was they were looking at genetic traits that could help improve increase grazing efficiency now that's just my what I read in the article Edward and I want you to kind of explain define the problem or define uh, from a from a uh, study standpoint of what you guys are looking at here yeah i think that's a i think that's a great way to, to to kind of frame it so my interest i guess as a as a range management specialist really came into play when i started looking at the type of work that our broader beef scientists at the u of a and in alberta were doing on something called residual feed intake which is a measure of basically production efficiency in in beef cattle and it's basically a way to evaluate the amount of weight gain that an individual animal is putting on relative to the amount of feed that it's taking in and it adjusts for things such as the amount of energy that it might require to maintain itself and the u of a has had a really rich history of working on this for somewhere around pushing 25 years now and so they've done this with thousands and thousands of animals the one thing that struck me though when i started looking at this is that a lot of that feed efficiency work is being done in dry lot so it's being done in a feedlot environment and the reason it's done in a feedlot environment is because you can track uh, what those animals are eating so on a daily basis or even an hourly basis and so 
in order to create a quantitative metric of relative feed efficiency or relative feed intake for an individual animal, you need to know exactly how much that animal is taking in and then look at its weight gain over a period of time. So it makes sense to do that in dry lot. But the thing that struck me as a pasture person mm -hmm. and as someone is, that's interested in cow-calf production is that when you are testing relative feed intake in a dry lot environment, you're eliminating a, a lot of the animal behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by that is if you're talking about animals that are free ranging, those animals are making a series of complex behavioral decisions throughout the day, you know, throughout the week, throughout the month. So those animals are deciding where are they gonna spend their time feeding? What habitats are they going to select? And they might have 10 or 20 different habitats in these complex environments. And then even within an individual habitat, they need to decide what plants are they gonna feed on? There's hundreds of plant species out there. They may be feeding preferentially on only a dozen plant species. And then they may be taking in a couple dozen other ones, but there may be hundreds of plants that they don't even touch. They don't utilize at all. And similarly, when you have animals that are free ranging, they have very complex uh, energy, uh, bioenergetic budgets. So they're deciding how much time are they gonna spend walking around, searching for these preferential habitats, identifying these, these preferential plants and then consuming them. And so the way an animal partitions its time between searching, feeding, and then of course resting will have a very big impact on the amount of energy that that animal is going to put into growth or lactation and therefore the production of a calf at the end of the summer. So, and by, again, by looking at this in dry lot, because we've eliminated a lot of those natural behaviors, it begs the question, is an animal that's efficient in dry lot also efficient on pasture? And is that even a safe assumption to make? Or if we're selecting for an animal that's efficient in dry lot, could it be less efficient on pasture? In other words, are there behaviors that are actually very different in terms that will affect the production outcome of both the cow and its lactating, uh, the, the calf that it's supporting through lactation? And so we came up with this idea of precision ranching. Mm -hmm. and, and this precision ranching concept has been used and thrown around a few different places. But the way we like to define it is basically trying to put the right animal in the right place at the right time to balance off both production, so weight gain objectives, but also environmental outcomes. Environmental outcomes could be preventing overgrazing. So where you have a large pasture and only 20% of the pasture is being really effectively utilized and 80% isn't being utilized at all. So when you think about precision ranching, trying to get the right animal in the right place at the right time, we have different tools to be able to manipulate those patterns. So the, the conventional patterns are take a large pasture, subdivide it using fencing mm -hmm. and try to get improved distribution that way. So, and that's certainly one way of doing it. Another way would be trying to establish additional water development or using mineral placement or salt placement to try to draw or attract those animals out, okay? Mm -hmm. But there's another tool which it goes to the heart of the fact that there's animal genetics at play here because animal genetics may also dictate the extent to which these individual cows select habitat A over habitat B or even prefer plant species D over plant species E. So, and of course, it may also affect their bioenergetics. And so the way I like to describe this is if we could identify the ADD cows, you know, the attention deficit yeah. disorder cows in a herd, yeah. and we knew the ones that were always running around, burning up a lot of energy, but not really very efficient. And by efficient, I mean smart in making good decisions to select the right habitats and the right plant species so as to optimize their energy and protein intake. If we could identify those ADD cows, we'd probably get rid of them in a hurry, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, and so the bioenergetics are very important, but it also means we need 
a selection tool to identify which animals are the ADD cows. Now, you might know for your herd because you can identify cows that, you know, that cow at the end of the summer always looks in bad shape. So maybe that happens to be an ADD cow. We don't know. Maybe it's one of those cows that just doesn't do well, doesn't overwinter well. Um, but also it could be that that animal is making poor decisions in terms of what habitats is that animal choosing to use and is it adapting its habitat selection over time. So in the spring, we might expect those animals to select different habitats than in summer or in the fall and going into winter, strictly because the amount of forage and the quality of forage is changing. And so some of those animals may be able to adapt very effectively. Another way to think about this is the innate knowledge of these animals. Like, do they, do they have the innate knowledge to be able to select the optimal habitats, diets, and limit their unnecessary uh, activities in order to conserve energy so that they can put weight on themselves and into their calf. So that's really the concept of precision ranching. Mm -hmm. There's a very big behavioral component. There is a, a, a potential genetic component at, you know, within the individual herd that we're identify yeah. that we're interested in identifying, because if we can identify that, we could create genetic markers that would be a tool to allow ranchers to then select animals that would customize their herd for their habitat available, their diet available, and for the type of terrain that they have, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that was the what you just said there at the very end. That's really the basis of what it is, is being able to select the right animal for your environment. And, and that's that was what was really intriguing to me. Folks, my guest today is Edward Bork. He's a professor and Matheus Chair in Rangeland and Ecology Management at the University of Alberta. He is our guest today. We're talking about this study that they are doing at the University of Alberta. When we come back, we're going to get into the details of what this study looks like, how they're going to perform that, what the, the cattle herds that they're going to be using, and get into what that's going to look like when we return here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. At the American Akaushi Association, we're more than prime. The American Akaushi Association was created to help ranchers be more profitable and find opportunities when using Akaushi genetics in their herd. We focus on market opportunities for our members and offer support from conception to consumer. When you choose Akaushi, you have a network right there with you. Experience the difference at Akaushi.com. That's A-K-A-U-S-H-I.com. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. My guest today is Edward Bork with the University of Alberta. And we have been talking about uh, an interesting project that they are getting underway now that really is trying to pinpoint some genetic traits that or genetic markers that cattle may have that would help us to pinpoint that and and try to find cattle that fit our environment, that fit the feed sources that we have. And and so, Edward, you talked a little bit about the reasoning why and where this the basis for why you guys are looking at doing this study. Now let's get into what this is going to look like. I know you're just getting underway with it, but I know you guys have some base herds there at the University of Alberta that you're going to be using with that. That uh, And so let's get into the details of what this is going to look like and how it's going to roll out. Sure. So this work is going to be done at the Kinsella uh, Research Station, which is a research station that the University of Alberta has been running basically in East Central Alberta for upwards of 50 years or a very long period of time. Uh, it was originally the, the, the site of a lot of the work that Roy Berg, who was an animal uh, geneticist, did a lot of his crossbreeding, foundational crossbreeding work uh, many years ago. And so we, we have upwards of, of 900 head of, of breeding cows there uh, representing several different breeds. The, the, the base breed that we're gonna be using, we're gonna be looking at both a purebred Angus uh, herd that's, that's on the facility, but we'll also be looking at a crossbred breed, which is called the Kinsella Composites, which is actually a derivative of the original herd uh, that Roy Berg had been working with many, many years ago. And it's largely an Angus herd, but there's some other breeds mixed in as well. Mm -hmm. And so the reason we're using these cattle is in part because there's 
a very rich history of understanding of feed efficiency, for example, on the on, on the cow herd itself. There's a lot of uh, background information on how well these animals did when they were, for example, heifers, when they were growing heifers and they were tested in dry lot. So we have an understanding of how well they performed there, but now we have the opportunity to look at them as mature, productive females in a production environment, open range grazing. And so the traits that we inherently need, and we're gonna collect information on, on cow-calf weight gain. So these cows and calves get uh, weighed intermittently at the start of the grazing season. And then as they transition from what we call tame or introduced pasture over to summer native. And, and this environment is, it's a kind of a classical knob and kettle topography with rolling landscape with wetlands, upland grasslands, shrublands, and then uh, little pockets of aspen forest. So the reason why we want that type of landscape is we want to maximize the amount of selective potential that those animals can exhibit, mm -hmm. their behaviors. So they're going to be constantly going up and down hills. They're going to be constantly looking and searching through different habitats. And of course, the plant diversity is really high. So we'll be collecting cow-calf weight gain intermittently throughout the growing season or grazing season. But then we'll also be looking at collecting this trait information. And the, the trait information really comes down to knowing what habitats these animals are selecting. Uh, historically, uh, the GPS technology that was out there, at least if you wanted high accuracy, uh, information you had to use really expensive uh, for example gps collars that might run you a couple thousand dollars a piece now the cost of these gps collars has come down to a couple hundred dollars a piece and in fact they're so small and compact you can put them on an individual ear tag so as the technology advances it means we can get away with not just looking at 10 or 20 cows mm -hmm we can ramp up to as many as 200 cows. So we're gonna take a base herd of 200 of these animals and put these GPS ear tags on them so that we can track where they go. Mm -hmm. And we use that information to basically identify what habitats these cows are preferring and what habitats these cows are avoiding. And that becomes one of the traits that we can then go back to the genomic panels that we have in order to look for genes or markers that might explain why these cows either prefer certain habitats or avoid them. So we might be able to identify cows that will avoid riparian areas, which could be a good thing if you're trying to protect riparian areas. Or we might be able to identify cows that prefer to utilize aspen forest. And so if you're in an area with a lot of wooded, wooded uh, rangeland, you might actually select for cattle that do well and prefer those wooded rangelands. Um, in addition to that, we are also going to be looking at activity data, and we're doing that with uh, pedometers. These are leg-mounted pedometers. I like to equate them to an Apple iWatch mm -hmm. because most people understand that if they have one of those iWatches, that it it can measure your step counts and your activity. These are kind of the same thing, except they're put on the leg of a cow, and they'll track the amount of time that they spend lying down, standing, and also walking. And of course, you can use the step count information to create a energy budget for that animal. So animals that might be spending a lot of time searching and you know uh, expending a lot of this valuable energy walking around rather than feeding might be less efficient in terms of weight gain. That the amount of uh, milk that they're producing and the size of the calf at the end of the year might be relatively lower. Mm -hmm. So we have these GPS ear tags, we have these pedometers that are mounted onto these animals. Uh, and, and that gives us a pretty good understanding of where are those animals going? What are they doing in terms of their behavior, how they're allocating the time in the field? We're also using uh, a portable green feed units to track methane emissions on a subset of these animals in the field. Mm -hmm. Now you might be wondering, well, why are we measuring that? Well, because although we're very interested in the cow-calf gain, so the, the, the production outcome, uh, there's also really good research which clearly indicates that as you change the dietary composition, and there's a genomic element to this as well, that different cows will have different rumen microbiomes and that will translate into different level, levels of methane emissions. And so methane, of course, is a... Uh, 
undesirable outcome, both for environmental reasons, but also because it represents a net energy loss. So animals that basically are uh, lower in terms of their methane emissions may indeed be actually more feed efficient. So not only will we look for potential markers that will identify cow-calf production traits, but also we can look for traits that may be responsible or, or markers that may be responsible for lower methane emissions. And that would be a double benefit because not only if we can reduce the meth methane emissions, that helps the industry and consumer acceptance of the product, but it could also directly account for some of the improved animal production because that means those animals are basically digesting more efficiently and they're they're translating that into greater weight gain. Mm -hmm. uh, we are working with uh, a rumen microbiologist to basically uh, characterize the composition of the rumen microbiome. So looking at the uh, bacteria and archaea and all the, the critters that are in the, the rumen that are responsible for the, the digestion process. So that becomes another really important element in order to understand how does that translate and how, how does it link the genomics of the animal to what they're eating in the diet to potentially the production outcomes and the environmental outcome of methane emissions. Mm -hmm. um, the one last piece that's in here as well is looking at the diet. And the diet is a tricky one because if you look traditionally at how how we measure diet of free ranging animals, it usually comes down to either following these animals around and taking bite counts and trying to figure out, you know, how many bites are they taking on a sedge or on mm -hmm. June grass or blue grandma or Western wheatgrass or whatever it might be. But that's very slow, very tedious, and you just can't get a large enough sample size. There are other more invasive techniques such as esophageal fistulas, where basically we can um, operate on these animals and we can create contraptions to that allows us to to capture whatever they're eating for a 15 minute period and then we stop the animal we take that all out and look at it the problem is you can't do that on a really large number of animals mm -hmm. it's just not practical and in genomic work you need large sample size to, to facilitate what's called uh, genome-wide association and so in this case, we're gonna use something called fecal DNA barcoding, which basically means taking a fecal sample from the animal and then using uh, genomics, in this case, plant genomics, mm -hmm. to basically identify the different plant species that are within the diet. And if we combine the identity of those plant species with an estimate of their digestibility, then that should enable us to look at, uh, characterize attributes of the diet, such as the richness of the diet, the diversity of the diet, or maybe the relative abundance of different functional groups, such as legumes, the graminoids, and so on, or even different plant species. And that would be really powerful because it would allow us to have a relatively non-invasive way to characterize the diets of these animals and then to use diet as another trait characteristic to account for those animals that have higher weight gain or lower methane emissions on pasture. So, you know, you're, hopefully I'm painting a picture that your, your, your listeners will understand that we're looking at the cattle genomics, the behavior, which includes this habitat selection, diet selection, their activity budgets, and those traits that we really care about, which are cow-calf production and methane emissions. And by doing that, we can start to pull them all together. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think as we talked earlier, before we, we started uh, the interview, was one of the things that we all have as, as ranchers out there, we always have those cows that we look out there and we see that are coming out of winter in great condition and bring in a great calf. We also see the cows out there that are bring, that come out of winter, maybe great condition and wean off a terrible calf. And essentially what we're, you know, I guess if we were to break this all down to very simplistic terms, we're trying, that that's where this is coming to is. And, and I think one of the biggest differences that you, you commented about earlier is this is being done in a rangeland setting not in a dry lot setting and so you know basically that's kind of where this is coming down to 
Yeah. And, and, and to be really honest, this work wouldn't have been possible 20, 30 years ago because the technology wasn't there. But with the advancement in GPS, with the advancement in, in the, the Apple iPhone equivalent for cows, which yeah. are these pedometers, yeah. and, and the advent now of, of DNA technologies that enable us to, you know, to look at the, the fecal DNA barcoding, it enables us to collect data that we couldn't have done 30 years ago. We just couldn't do it. Yeah. yeah. Folks, my guest today is Edward Bork. He's a, a professor at the University of Alberta. We're talking about some research that they're just getting to, getting started here about trying to pinpoint some genetic traits that could increase grazing efficiency in the types of cattle that you have, basically fitting cattle to your environment. We've got one more segment. We're going to uh, visit with him about some more things on that. Stay with us. You're listening to the Working Ranch Radio Show. Living in the country means working in the country, and that calls for a tough tractor. Well, Bobcat has 15 models in its compact tractor lineup from 21 to 58 horsepower. With the help of your local Bobcat dealer, you'll find a perfect match for your property and to-do list. Get a look at all the different models at Bobcat.com, and while you're there, use the Build and Quote tool to design your ideal machine. Get yourself one tough tractor from one tough animal, Bobcat. Visit Bobcat.com. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. My guest today, Edward Bork, full professor and Matheus Chair in Rangeland and Ecology and Management for the University of Alberta. We're be, we have been talking about a project that they are just getting underway that is really trying to match up the type of cattle we run, the genetics of those cattle with our environment that we have. And of course, uh, you know, before we get into something else, something I was thinking of, Edward, was, you know, there's a lot of different environments that beef cattle run in North America. And, uh, you know, just in Canada alone, you've got your various different types. You talked about the type of environment that these test cattle would be running in um, and here in the United States we've got everything from northern plains to southern plains to dry conditions in the Great Basin to uh, areas in the Midwest with high precipitation so as this study goes through where do you think is this study going to be applicable to all of the different environments that we see across North America? I think that's a great question Justin and I think you raise a really good point that Cows are not just cows functionally everywhere that, mm-hmm. you know, there's a reason why we've got different breeds that that are adapted to the Scottish Highlands as opposed to the Swiss Alps, as opposed to, <laughs> you know, Longhorns. Yeah. Uh, so and that's one of the reasons. So as a starting point, we're doing this work at, at the Kinsella Research Station, mostly because we've got a large herd that we have this established genomic track record and production record as a starting point but we also are very keenly aware that once we've identified the genomic markers let's say for activity budgets in that environment or for the the habitat selection in that environment that it may not be as simple as grabbing those exact markers and applying them to cattle let's say in western montana and and southwestern alberta where you're dealing with these big foothill environments you know where cattle are typically walking up a thousand foot slopes and so the what we do know is that genetics do play a role for example in the selection of different topographic locations and there's been work that derek bailey has done down in in the southwestern united states which basically shows this so it may not be as simple as saying well here's the one marker once you know that marker that's going to answer all your questions uh, there, there might then be specific adaptation for those different environments, and there may be further modification based on the breed itself. So we might see very different responses if we're talking about a Simmental Charlet type animal as opposed to, a, a, you know, an Angus animal. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's a very fair point. And then it also comes down to, you know, having went to school and, and been subject to some of the work that Fred Provenza has, has done over the years on animal behavior, there's not just a genetic component to these animals and the way they function. There's also a learned component. 
and and Fred Provenza has done a lot of work in, in trying to parse out the effect of learning and 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 the post ingestive feedback. So not only is there a genomic component that regulates how these animals behave and what they're going to eat when they're out on these complex environments, but there's a learned component from the dam to the to the calf. And then there's a, there's a post-ingestive feedback as well. So there's a lot more work to potentially do here, but I think what we're doing is we are at least delving into the genomic relevance here of how that might convey or, or allow for the selection of improved traits on pasture. And that's a really important step in my opinion, because when you look at the amount of, of work that's been done, for example, on uh, cow-calf production, I, I think it's fair to say that at least the production component maybe pales in comparison to what we know about how to produce animals in dry lot efficiently. And, and I, I'll circle back to this concept of, of precision ranching. If you think about precision agriculture, precision agriculture has been practiced in the swine and poultry industry for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And the reason for it is because for, from a practical perspective, you can implement precision farming if you're a swine operator because you have a barn where you can control the temperature, the humidity, the lighting, the exact amount of water, the exact composition and amount of feed. And you can do it 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's kind of akin to a dry lot uh, context for beef production. But as soon as you take those animals out into these free ranging environments, that's where the genetic component has been typically ignored up until now. And so this is a first attempt to kind of bring the genetics back into the fold to make sure that we don't forget about that very important component. Because if we have, you know, if we have producers that are relying heavily on wetlands, for example, and, and uh, sedge communities like you have in the Intermountain region of central Manitoba here in Canada, those producers might, 80% of their forage might be wetlands. And so why on earth would you want a cow in that environment that doesn't do as well on, on wetlands? You'd want to get rid of those animals and you'd want those animals that are able to, you know, prefer and digest really effectively and translate those coarse sedges over into cow-calf production. Similarly, if you're working, you know, if you're running a herd in the boreal forest of northern Saskatchewan or northern Alberta, and you're grazing 80% of your landscape is aspen forest, you don't really want a cow that's directly, that's been managed and selected down at Medicine Hat where there isn't a tree in sight and moving it all the way up into the boreal forest. Why would you ever do that? So I can see very much the identification of traits down the road and markers for the selective I, I guess, creation of herds that are customized for different environments. And it could be topography. Mm -hmm. So it could be these big foothill environments or these level plain environments. It could be for the different habitats that we have. For example, these wetland pastures as opposed to forested pastures or these mixed pastures or these open pastures like we have in the, in, in the mixed grass prairie. Um, or diets, mm -hmm. and, and diets can be the same way. That's more of that fine tuning. And then you throw in the, the activity budgets, and there's an enormous amount of untapped potential that we really haven't delved into at all. And so even if the genetics only explains two or 3% or 4%, that could be huge when you start adding that up over millions of cattle, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. A, a two or three or 4% yeah. gain in production efficiency would be absolutely enormous, mm -hmm. especially if you couple that with a, a potential decline in environmental impacts, including methane emission and, and so on. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I know there's folks probably listening and say, well, I kind of already know that. I mean, we run certain breed of cattle because they seem to do better in these sort of environments. Uh, and, and I can kind of hear those comments already, I guess, rolling around in my head. But, we, you know, with this, you know, we're, you're really trying to pinpoint that we have the genomic ability now, uh, the technology, as you said earlier, that where we can really try to get 
what this is doing, trying to really pinpoint those those genetics. You answered my question a little bit ago already when you talked about the learned abilities that some of these cattle have, and that's something you know. There's folks that bring in outside cattle that maybe don't don't raise the, their their replacements and things like that. So that knowing knowing that is an element, I think is is a big deal as well. So um, one of the other things that you and I were talking about a little bit ago was the fact that there are you know several of these breeds are starting to have some sort of efficiency element to their EPDs. And when we talk about what you're looking at here, the thing that goes through my head is there's a couple EPD numbers that are, you know regarding like docility and some of the some of the economic uh, EPD numbers that some of these breeds are putting out there now. How's that going to correlate or you know is that going to be part or an element to this that can be used or how does that tie into what what you guys are doing? I, th- I think that's a great question, Justin. Because we're using a research herd that has a lot of other supplementary information, we will certainly be looking at some of the cross correlation in traits, uh, you know, among uh, across different apps. So, for example, uh, longevity or you know the 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 foot integrity and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, is there a lameness trait that that shows up more commonly? Um, all of those kinds of things, because we're dealing with a fairly large group of cattle, we will look for those types of relationships. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that we are very early on in this process and we're not assuming that this is going to be easy or quick. Let me put it that way as well. <laughs> yeah. If it was easy to do and it could have been done relatively quickly, it would have been yeah, done a long everybody time Everybody would have ago. done it, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is th- there's very few projects that actually are looking at the holistic cow-calf you know, mm-hmm. enterprise and trying to tease out these different elements of the behavior of the animals, the genetics of the animal and the production elements. Usually one of those pieces is looked at, but not all of them trying to pull them all together. So that's really what makes yeah. this project unique. But because we have a lot of these other trait data, we will and we hope to look at some of these correlations to see, are we trading off something? So for example, I mentioned, you know, that if an animal was shown to be relatively efficient in dry lot when they were a yearling, does that necessarily translate to high production when it's out on pasture? We have a chance to test that as a mature cow. And and even that, and looking at whether these animals are indeed as efficient when they are on pasture as they are in dry lot as a young animal, even that will be very important insight. So we're not assuming that, you know, that, that we're going to get... Uh, the answer to everything but i think we're going to get a lot of very novel insight as this process unfolds Mm -hmm. yeah definitely a good start to getting things going and and like you said i think what really drew my attention and you keep pointing this out is this is uh, a a beef cow calf type study and there's so many of us out there that that's that's what we're doing out there we don't have dry lots we're not doing it that way uh and so i think there's going to be a lot of relevance to the to the basics out there so edward as we're just about to wrap up here i guess if folks want to follow along or if they want to kind of check in on this, how do they get more information or where could they go on this? Uh, they, they can always reach out to me. Uh, my email is edward.bork at ualberta.ca and I'm happy to share more information. And uh, I, I hope as this, as our results unfold, Justin, that you'll invite uh, either myself back or one of my mm-hmm. colleagues back. There, this is a very large integrated team of 10 researchers. So I just happen to be the, the lead <laughs> one of the pack, but there's a lot of people that are involved in this. Uh, that that are making this happen, along with quite a large battery of of grad students and yeah. undergrads. Yeah. So it, it, it's a real team effort. I, I will say that for sure. Well, there's no question, Edward, that we do need to have you back here as as we get a year or two down the road on this, and you have some of the, these results coming back in. I know I'm I would be very interested in it, and I know a lot of folks listening would be as well. So again, Edward, thanks for joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Thank you so much, Justin. Much appreciated. Edward Bork, full professor and Mathias Chair in Rangeland Ecology and Management for the University of Alberta. My guest here today on our program. Uh, and as, as I said just a moment ago, this is something that I think has a lot of relevance to a lot of us in the beef cattle industry. So it'll be interesting to see what the results look like on this study. Now, something else that we uh, did not get into that's also going to be part of this study is some work with virtual fencing as well and some studies with 
with a company, No Fence, is a virtual fencing company that they are doing in conjunction with that. So that in itself is another segment of uh, that would warrant a whole other, another interview as well. Well, stay with us when we come back. Meteorologist Don Day joins us as we take a look at our long-term weather when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Whoa, Herefords are the efficiency experts for a reason. In crossbreeding systems, Herefords boost pregnancy rates by 7% and add $30 per head in feed yard profitability. And Hereford genetics bring unrivaled hybrid vigor, longevity, and disposition. Now that'll stop you in your tracks. Come home to Hereford for more pounds, more calves, and more profit. Visit Hereford.org for a sale near you. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. Meteorologist Don Day joining us now with a look at our long-term weather. And uh, as typical to spring, you know, we're seeing a lot of different very types of weather across the country. And uh, Don, when we look at for the next couple of weeks, we find ourselves hit, hitting uh, or approaching the third, about the third week of May here. What, uh, what do you anticipate the rest of May to look like just generally? And we can get to specifics here in a little bit. Well, for uh, another week and maybe for another couple of weeks. I think the uh, pattern for a lot of the lower 48 states, but especially parts of the the west and even parts of the northern plains and the western parts of the central plains, uh, it's going to be an active pattern and maybe a little bit on the cool side. Uh, April ended up being a cooler than average month for a large part of the, the U.S. The exception is the far southern areas of the U.S. And that's print is kind of continuing uh here in the early parts of may corn and soybean planting is behind uh due to that cool and wet weather in many areas of the corn belt midwest so basically it's going to be more of the same which means we see more stormy weather in the pacific northwest of the northern rockies uh parts of the northern plains uh we're also going to see probably uh more severe weather uh the potential for more heavy weather in parts of the southern uh, let's say the the southeastern parts of the southern plains that would be eastern kansas eastern texas oklahoma into those areas and as you mentioned it's spring mm-hmm. we could have a wide variety <laughs> of weather that you'd expect this time of year and i think we're going to see that mm-hmm. uh, we could have some very warm temperatures this coming week in parts of the middle part of the u.s and there could be parts of the pacific northwest that are uh, just as cold relative to averages as the uh, Gulf of Mexico is continuing to churn out one system after another. Uh, the, the bad thing, though, is, is that it appears to be a trend that continues to favor the areas that have gotten wet are going to be the areas that are going to be getting wet. Now, in the past week, we have had, finally, some decent rains across parts of eastern Colorado, parts of western Kansas, um, western and southwest Nebraska, which were really, really parched. Uh, some parts of Nebraska, Justin, got over a foot of snow earlier this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you look at the latest drought map and you see that there has been some changes, some relative changes to the northern tier of the country, which you would expect. We've seen a lot of moisture up there. We still see parts of of northern Montana. And if you string along down to the western side of Wyoming and all the way down into Utah, and then you stretch down into the southern plains, we still see some dry conditions there. I know the dry dry conditions in the southern plains, uh, that's a big concern for folks. Uh, Do they see any any reprieve or things? things changing may as as we look into june you know that's that's a really good question and you're right those southern areas when you talk and we you and i always like to talk about using interstates as dividing lines and (laughs) let's we'll do that again so we know we did see some rain get down to i-70 and areas actually south of interstate 70 in colorado and kansas here over the past week um and i think those areas are going to see some more chances late next this this coming week late in the week and towards next weekend what i'm afraid is going to happen for uh, new mexico and west texas and the far southern counties of colorado and i would include southern utah with this as well uh those areas are just not going to be able to catch these spring storms as the tracks are just too far north so uh the there will be continued improvement in soil moisture conditions in those northern, northwest, and north central areas of the U.S., continued dryness in those southern areas. You know, New Mexico 
Southern Colorado and West Texas are areas that I'm most concerned about. Now, there will be some thunderstorm activity that will get into those areas, but one of those slow-moving, lumbering storms that can bring good rain to those areas, we still, at least for the next week, Justin, we don't see that. Now, as we get into early June, we do start to see the thunderstorm season come up out of Central America, that month, that um, North American monsoon, we call it. But that usually takes a while to get going in June and into early July, which is their their next best hope mm-hmm. is going to be that thunderstorm pattern. But we're kind of running out of time for spring in those southern areas. Mm-hmm. An area we don't talk an awful lot about here. And when you look at a map, you say you go from the Missouri River to uh, as far east as the Mississippi River and maybe up into the edge of Kentucky there. That area generally up and down north-south is generally pretty good. But you get out to the to the far eastern along the coast there into North Carolina and and, in places like that, even down into Florida, looking like they've been kind of dry. Is that normal or or, or, or are they in a situation here that they're a little bit concerned there? Well, yeah, it is dry. In fact, the soil moisture uh, anomaly at the end of April was showing that area definitely drying out. And it's it's interesting because you are bookending two dry areas, those uh, the southern parts of the mid-Atlantic states that you just mentioned there, the Carolinas. Then in the just to the west, we have much above average precipitation mm-hmm. in most of the central, eastern, and southern areas of the Corn Belt into the Delta area. Then you hit this dry patch in the central and southern plains. So that that's a little bit of an anomaly in terms of that part of the country uh, being dry. Um, and I think uh, that is another area to watch as we head on into the summer season. I think the Corn Belt, the Midwest, the Great Lakes, They've got so much soil moisture, that's going to ride them well on into summer. Yeah. All right. Well, Don, thanks for joining us here. A good uh, look at the weather across the country. Thanks for joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Thanks for having me. And again, that was meteorologist Don Day with a look at our weather across the country. If you'd like to follow along with what he does on a daily basis and his weather outlook for the week, be sure to go to his website at dayweather.com and you can tune in and find a link to his daily video podcast. Well, stay with us. When we come back, we'll wrap up this week's episode and I will tell you what's on tap for our next show when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Do you have a young child, grandchild, niece, or nephew that loves the weather and wants to learn more? Day Weather has produced a children's weather journal full of weather facts, fun weather experiments, coloring pages, and pages to record weather observations for every season of the year. The weather journal is for ages 3 to 7 and designed to be fun and educational. The interactive weather projects are fun for the whole family to take part in. For only $10, the Day Weather Weather Journal is a great gift idea for any occasion. Click on our Amazon link to order at dayweather.com. Well, as we bring things to a close on this week's edition of the Working Ranch Radio Show, I do want to thank you for joining us. This has been Episode 69, and if you want to go back and you listen, want to listen to it, if you search any major or minor podcast provider out there, you will find us under Working Ranch Radio Show, and you can find this week's program as well as others. And if there's something you have a question about or a topic you'd like us to cover, send me an email. Let me know at justin.workingranch at gmail.com, or you can also send me a text at 30 seven three six three cows the working ranch radio show is a production of working ranch magazine branded number one by america's ranchers to start your subscription go to workingranchmag.com and you can start today next week on the program mary joe ehrman with farming without the bank she will be joining us on our program be sure to tune in next week at this same time for another great program here on the working ranch radio show thanks again for joining me I'm your host, Justin Mills, and until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long.